the scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 1, 1 through 3, and chapter 5, 14 through 24. This is from the Passion and Inclusive Bible. From Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we send our greetings to you, the congregation of believers in Thessalonica, which is in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God's delightful grace and peace rest on you. We are grateful to God for your lives, and we always pray for you. We remember, we remember before our God how you put your faith into practice, how your love motivates you to serve others, and how unrelenting is your hope-filled patience in our Lord Jesus Christ. This next section is from The Voice and the Inclusive Bible. Brothers and sisters, we strongly advise you to scold the rebels who devote their lives to wrecking havoc, to encourage the downcast, to help the sick and weak, and to be patient with all of them. Make sure no one returns evil for, for evil, but always pursue what is good as it affects one another in the church, but also all people. Celebrate always, pray constantly, and give thanks to God no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. This is God's will for all of you in Jesus the Anointed. Don't be suppressed by the Spirit. Don't downplay prophecies. Take a close look at everything, test it, then cling to what is good. Put away every form of evil. So now, may the God of peace make you God's own completely and set you apart from the rest. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved, kept intact, and wholly free from any sort of blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus the Anointed. For the God who calls you is faithful, and God can be trusted to make it so. This is the word of the Lord. Before I start this, uh, this teaching, let me just say this. At the end of the sermon, or the teaching, however we want to call it, um, I will be sharing a fairly dramatic miscarriage story. And so uh, if we get to that point and you need to step out of the room, I get it. If you're watching online and you're like, nope, I can't hear that this morning, that's okay too. And I'll give us a couple of seconds for those two things to happen if needed. Okay, I just want to give you a heads up. So the thing about Paul, Paul has a pretty bad reputation, wouldn't you say? I mean, he seems anti-woman, uh, an anti-Semite in some ways, uh, anti-homosexuality, pro-patriarchy. <laughs> Yes, anti-long hair on men, that's right. Pro-long hair on women. <laughs> Says the guy who's never had to deal with that. <laughs> Not you, Paul. I'm talking about Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so many, many, many years ago, I was in a group of friends at a church that we were serving at in Tupelo and uh, we were at a baseball game one night with our kids. Uh, my, the two kids that are 12 months apart, Anna and Sam, they were on a t-ball team, and I think Anna would have been five and Sam would have been four. So this is how long, and they're 24 and 23 now, so that's how long that's been. But my group of friends and I were sitting at this t-ball game watching our children play, and one of the girls in that group said, that she was leaving in the morning to go to the beach and she needed to go home and pack. And I was like, oh, wow. I said, are you going with your husband and kids? And she's like, oh, no, I'm just, I'm just going. I was like, you're going by yourself? That's amazing. 
I wish I could do something like that. That's awesome. Way to go. Good for you. And then I go back to watching the kids. And then she says, and you can tell she's getting sheepish about this point. I'm like, what's happening? She says, well, actually, I need to be honest and tell you that all of us are going. But we didn't invite you. Oh, she said, and I know that you'll probably be texting us or seeing pictures. I wouldn't have been texting back then, I don't think. But, and there was no Facebook. I don't, anyway, she, she was like, you'll probably find out about it, so I just wanted to be honest. She said, but I, I would really love it if you could go with us. I think it would be a lot of fun. She said, I'll take care of your gas and room, just bring some spending money. And of course, you feel odd, right? Like, what's happening? But because I was so much of an insecure young 20-year-old, who needed somebody to be nice to me. I was like, okay. So I go ask, yeah, I did say ask my husband. That was a different world back then. Uh, was it okay? And he was like, sure, we'd do something with the kids, go to grandparents or something. And so that happened. So I get a phone call that night from one of the girls in the group, and she's like, I can't believe you just did that. And I'm like, what did I just do? She said, you invited yourself on a trip that you were not invited on. I said, I did not invite myself. I didn't know you were going on a trip. She said, well, that's what she said, this girl. And I'm like, I never said that. I, that never came out of my mouth. She offered. And I said, sure. And so this girl was all tore up that I was coming. And this was the girl that I was the closest to. And I could not understand, why don't you want me there? I don't. It's so frustrating when people put words in your mouth that you never said. Can I get an amen? amen. Isn't that so hard? You hear, oh, well, so-and-so said you said such-and-such. I never said that. Well, that's what they said, so it must be true. That's so hard. Now, to follow up on that story, I found out the reason they didn't want me to go is they planned on doing some more nefarious type things that involved alcohol, and at the time, I was not a person that drank alcohol, and so they, did, they felt like I would rain on their parade. That was part of it. There were some other things, too. Anyway, I sometimes think that Paul gets blamed for some things that he never said. And I, that's the way that I want to approach this Paul series, is that I think Paul's gotten a bad rap, and sometimes we forget the context he was in at the time. But more than that, this is why I ask you to have the notes in front of you, because I think we'll find some things about Paul we didn't really know. First of all, that I want to say about Paul there are 13 letters in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul. The issue with that is he only definitively wrote seven of those. Only seven. Uh, the definitive Pauline letters are 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philippians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then Romans. Colossians and Ephesians was most likely written by followers of Paul. 2 Thessalonians, as a scholar said, is a clumsy reinstatement of the genuine letter of 1 Thessalonians. Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy, which are like my least favorite letters in the whole Bible, were written in circumstances and standpoints that were clearly not Paul's. 
So those six letters have been attributed to Paul over the centuries, and there's a large consensus among scholars that they were not Pauline authored. Why? Well, tradition holds that Paul died under the order of Nero by beheading in 64 CE, so 30 years after Christ died. The dating of these letters, Colossians, Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians, Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy, they all start around 80 CE, about 20 years after Paul died. So he wasn't alive. He couldn't have written them. So, but here's the thing. The style, the flow, the language, the vocabulary, the content was very different from the seven definitive Pauline letters. Let me give you an example. I've shared this before. If I were to wrap up a book so you could not see the author and hid the author's name on the page at the top every time you turn the page, and I handed you a book, and it was really by Stephen King, but I told you, here, you need to read the new John Grisham. If you read either one of those, you probably wouldn't get too far into it and realize, that's not Stephen King. What's happening? Did somebody take over Stephen King's body? Because as, as, we, as we write, we have a particular way of saying things. This is how college professors are so adept at spotting plagiarism. Because if you had a student in your program for two to four years, and all of a sudden you get a paper and you go, whoa, those are not your words. That does not sound like you. Am I right? Yeah. Um, so that's that. In the ancient world, it was customary to attach someone else's name to a document. Not as a way to trick people, that's not what they were trying to do, but to give that document or that letter legitimacy. So here's the thing, if they could say this was from Paul, it made it sound more important and more pertinent and, and, and more pressing. Now, they didn't do that out of, out of a sense of, I need to be deceitful. Most likely these people were people that maybe their uh, grandparents knew Paul and so they've heard stories about Paul. These were people that were probably loosely connected to Paul in some way, but not Paul. So that's what we have with those. So what we're going to do with this series is we're going to start with the oldest letter ever written in the New Testament and move up. So the oldest letter in the New Testament, the oldest document in the New Testament, is 1 Thessalonians. It was written around 50, 51 A.D., about 20 years after the death of Christ, written before the Gospels were written. Let me say this. All of these seven books were written in this 50 to 60 uh, C.E., common era, uh, and all of the Gospels are written way beyond that. So Paul didn't even have the Gospels to go by in these seven letters. He's kind of just figuring it out on his own. And unfortunately, we get to stumble along some things that might have been a mistake, that might, that might be, uh, okay, that really doesn't apply to us. Are you following me? Am I being too weird or too heady right now? Because I, I don't, okay, anyway, good. <laughs> so I think for a lot of us, I know for me, that we see Jesus through the lens of Paul rather than Paul through the lens of Jesus. And I think a lot of our theology and our spiritual formation come more from Paul than they do Christ. Would anybody else agree that that's fair? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's okay, but we have to be aware that we're doing that or that we've done that. Some background of Thessalonica. 
the population would have been around 40,000 at the time. It was a wealthy city. It was originally named, this is funny, Thermal because of its hot springs. It was renamed Thessalonica after Alexander the Great's half-sister. It was home to a large Jewish community, but also a home to uh, various cults and other religions. It was mixed up, man. It was mixed up. Paul and his companions, so in this particular letter, we have Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus. You remember I said just a couple of weeks ago about walking this narrow path. We don't do it alone. Paul did not walk this narrow path alone. He walked it with friends. They go to Thessalonica, they preach the gospel, and a group of Jews and non-Jews form a church or an ecclesia there. But Paul's time there was cut short because his life was in danger and they had to hightail it out of Thessalonica. So two years later, two years later after he's been in Thessalonica, he writes because he's like, with a glowing review to Paul on this community. He tells Paul, this community has got it right. This community is good. This community is working together. They're working through differences. They're working through hardships. They are together. Now also keep in mind that scholars at this time in the, in the history of the world, there probably were only about 2,000 followers of Christ and all of that space of land. It's, it's, it's just new. So every house church that you see spoken of in the, in the, in the uh, New Testament, you've got to think small. There might have only been 20, 10 or 20 people at a house church, maybe 50. Some scholars think that probably at Corinthians it was a larger gathering. But you're talking about a small group of people. And these people at Thessalonica are working through this thing together. They don't have written documents. All they have is what they've heard about Jesus. Maybe some of them knew Jesus. That's all they had to go on. So they're working through their faith pretty much blindly. But Timothy says there's nothing to worry about. They've got it. So someone said, as one of the scholars that I read said, this is Paul's friendliest letter. He's not mad at them about anything. He seems really mad all the time, doesn't he? Isn't that fair? Sounds like he's in a bad mood. Yeah. But he's not with this particular group. He's not. Paul didn't know Jesus. He probably was a near contemporary of him, but he was probably around 10 years younger than Jesus. So, and he was also a Pharisee, a Jewish, a, a sect of the Jewish people. And he would, wanted, he would have wanted nothing to do with him. We know eventually Paul goes out and starts persecuting Christians. So he had some antipathy for these people. According to Marcus Borg, Paul was committed to keeping social boundaries to preserve Jewish identity and community in a historical context in which accommodation to Hellenistic and Roman culture was a very real threat. Let me read a quote from Gary Willis, who is a Catholic scholar that I really enjoy. He says, We never see pure Pauline thought being developed at leisure by its own inner logic. Rather, we see Paul always thinking under pressure, usually in the heat of immediate controversy. The result is sometimes a lava flow of heated language, 
words tumbling out in self-defense or urgent exhortation. Paul is not a cool and remote philosopher, but an embattled messenger. At times, as Nietzsche has said, he was disagreeable to himself and to others. He is a mystic and a deep theologian, but also a voluble street fighter, a man busy on many fronts, often harried, sometimes exasperated. That sounds like the Paul we know. I wonder what kind of, if somebody ever discovered uh, a letter from Paul that was not sounding so mean. Of course, we have First Thessalonians, but what about some of the other ones that we don't have access to, we don't have anymore? What if he wasn't always angry? What if he wasn't always enraged with people? I don't know. Just a little bit of background about the various um, churches uh, that were forming. Scratch that. I've already shared that with you. Sorry. Um, have you ever, this is what I wanted to ask you about the small communities. Have you ever tried to get 10, 20, 50 people all to agree on the same thing? Come on. We know church life, right? That just doesn't happen. But these people in Thessalonica were agreed with no direction from a leader or a pastor or Jesus, no gospel. They found a way to make it work. And I think that's just absolutely beautiful and lovely. Some major themes in Thessalonians is Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters 18 times in this letter. He is proud of them. They have proven themselves to be fruitful, and he misses them. Wouldn't you? If you're dealing with all this other mess, with all these other churches that have lost their minds, and you got this one church that's really taking it on and doing, it, doing a good job, I would miss them too. Get me out of this mess. Take me back to the people of Thessalonica because they're much nicer. He told them that they are his joy and his trophy. In, in 1 Thessalonians 2, sorry, I'm doing a lot of books today. In 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 17 through 19, it says, if I could find it, hold on. He says, sorry, my, this print is really small and I really can't see it and I really could use like a light right down on it right now, but I don't have that, so bear with me. Beloved friends, we may have been torn away from you physically for a season, but never in our hearts, for we have had intense longings and have endeavored to come and see in your faces the reflection of this great love. We miss you badly. And I personally wanted to come to you, trying again and again but our adversary Satan blocked our way. For what will be our confident hope, our exhilarating joy to our wonderful trophy that we will boast in before our Lord Jesus at his appearing? It is you. Yes, you are our glorious pride and joy. He tells them also in the second chapter of Thessalonians, the word continues to be an energizing force in you who believe, they are still excited about Jesus. It is motivating them 
to do life differently. It's still impacting their everyday life. They're treating people better than they used to. They're getting along with people better than they used to. It's still an energizing force in their life. He exhorts them to continue to love unselfishly because their love for one another is known throughout the region. Can we just stop right there for just one second? What do you think Imago is known for? I've only been here a couple of years, so I don't really know. Well, I do think I know, but I'd rather hear from somebody that's been here for a minute or two. Yes. Yes, people think it's a welcoming church for sure. I think that too. I hear that all the time. I hear it every week from someone. You should be proud. I am proud that we believe people would say that about Imago, that we are welcoming, that we are kind, that you can come as you are. We really do mean that on the outside of that door out there. I've been in so many churches that probably had something like that outside their door, but they did not mean it. I mean, come as you are unless you're gay. <clears throat> come as you are unless you're addicted to drugs. Anybody else? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Also, one little snippet in 1 Thessalonians we have to talk about for just one little second, but I'm not going to go there deeply because I'm hoping to save that for our deconstruction series in October. In 1 Thessalonians 4, and you, if you want to jot these down, please feel free to. That's another reason I wanted to give you the notes. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we read, Beloved brothers and sisters, we want you to be quite certain about the truth concerning those who have passed away. So the people at Thessalonica are like, okay, there's people that have died. Where are they going? Where did they go? What happens to me when I die? So, they won't, so that you won't be overwhelmed with grief like many others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who died while believing in him. This is the word of the Lord. We who are alive in him and remain until the Lord appears will by no means have an advantage over those who have already died, for both will rise together. For the Lord himself will appear with a declaration of victory, the shout of an archangel, and the trumpet blast of God. He will descend from the heavenly realm and command those who are dead in Christ to rise first. Then we who are alive will join them, transported together in clouds to have an encounter with the Lord in the air, and we will be forever joined with the Lord. So encourage one another with these truths. What theology do we get from this passage? We're my Bible nerds. Rapture. One small segment of, of, uh, of a letter in Thessalonica, and we built an entire theology around it. A rapture theology. Let me just say this. Maybe that doesn't mean what we think it means. Again, I don't have time to get into it, but I hope we get into it in October. Aren't you excited about that? We might get to talk about some of that in October. Yeah, it's going to be good stuff. But there are two major things that I do want to focus on this morning. The, the opening of the letter. From Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we send our greetings to you, the congregation of believers in Thessalonica, which is in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God's delightful grace and peace rest on you. 
We are grateful to God for your lives, and we always pray for you. For we remember before our God how you put your faith into practice, how your love motivates you to serve others, and how unrelenting is your hope-filled patience in our Lord Jesus Christ. He addresses them as the congregation of believers. Uh, John Dominique Crossland says that it's interesting that the writers of the New Testament decided to use the Greek word ecclesia for church or congregation because it is a Greek word that means citizens of a Greek city officially assembled for self-governmental decisions. I didn't know that. Did anybody else know that? Don't tell me if you knew that. I'll be embarrassed. Kidding. I didn't know that. It's almost like there's this deliberate tactic by Paul to take the systems of the world, that imperial domination system, that imperial theology, and turn it upside down. Like, you keep your ecclesia. We're going to have one. It's going to be a lot different than what you got. It's going to be better. Was this perfectly innocent? Sure, it could be. We don't really know, though. Paul also says, he addresses God, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A little bit more of imperial theology here. Claudius, the Roman emperor at the time, was called God or Lord. Paul uses the phrase, God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. But Romans would have said that that all power, kingdom, and glory belong to Rome. You're thinking of the Lord's Prayer, right? Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Don't, let's not think of it the same way ever again. Because that's what Rome said of themselves. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. This is a direct challenge to imperial theology and an imperial domination system. When Paul writes of the gospel of Christ or the gospel of God in his letter, the word evangelion, it means good news. But Rome used this word too. Rome used this word to mean dynastic secessions and imperial victories from Rome. Another direct challenge to the empire. Paul also writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, when they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. Peace and security was a Roman motto. It was a Roman slogan. And it was promised and delivered to their conquered provinces, according to John Dominic Crossan. Paul deliberately, and the Gospels deliberately, use imperial language for a reason. And we have to be woken, woke up to that. It's certainly not anything I was ever taught. I was taught to see those verses in a totally different way. We are grateful to God for your lives and we always pray for you. For we remember before our God how you put your faith into practice. How your love motivates you to serve others. And how unrelenting is your hope-filled patience in our Lord Jesus Christ. The people in Thessalonica who were followers of the way had put their faith 
into practice. They didn't wait on someone, some preacher, some leader, some teacher to lead the way. They did it themselves. They just did it. They put it into practice. And this is why Paul was so proud of them. Their love for one another, how they served one another. This phrase, into practice, it comes from a Greek word that means labor. But not just labor, like you go to your job on Monday and work nine to five. That's labor. But this is not the word, this, that's not what this word is conveying here. This word labor means intense labor united with trouble and toil. Not only had they labored by putting their faith into practice, they labored under pain, in pain, in suffering, in very hard times. And he's proud of them that they persevered and they are persevering. All the heartache, all the distractions, all the criticisms, all the hurt, they just kept on going. You've heard people say that a way to get out of your funk is to go serve others, right? To take your mind off yourself, to get perspective on your own life, and that maybe your life is not so bad after all. We've all heard that, right? Right? And I think there's probably some value to that. Renee, would you say there's some value to that? She's our mental health therapist. I always check with her on things. I think there's value to that. But we also have to take a break when we need to. Sometimes we have to step back. I spoke with someone last night that was like, I just poured and poured and poured and poured myself out and I'm just weary. And this person does not need to be asked to do one more thing. Has anybody been there? Somebody, you know, sends you an email, somebody sends you a text, and that somebody's probably me. <laughs> and you think, oh dear God, I cannot do it right now. Let me just say to those of you at home and those of you in this room, it's okay to say, no, this is not a good time for me. Nobody's going to guilt you here. If anybody does, let me know. Let's talk through that. We, just, we don't do that here. We serve because we love, not because we feel guilty. Paul refers to the church in Thessalonica as his family. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14-24, we read, Brothers and sisters, we strongly advise you to scold the rebels who devote their lives to wreak havoc, to encourage the downcast, to help the sick and weak, and to be patient with all of them. In the, Passion, in the Passion Translation, it reads, We appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, to instruct those who are not in their place of battle. We're going to come back to that. Be skilled at gently encouraging those who feel themselves inadequate. Be skilled at gently encouraging those who feel themselves inadequate. Isn't that beautiful? Be faithful to stand your ground. Help the weak stand again. Be quick to demonstrate patience with everyone. In the uh, Passion Translation, there's a commentary in here that is just really, really good. Uh, They say that if you were to read this sentence correctly from uh, the original language, it could be translated, be clear-headed in our vision as we are deployed on the battlefield for faithfulness and love and set apart with the shield of hope of everlasting. I, I don't know where anybody's been the past six years, but does it not feel like this battlefield? Right? Everything is a stinking fight. Everything is. Does that not get exhausting? 
There's always a bad guy. There's always a boogeyman. I am so sick of it. This battlefield is not about a battlefield of, I've got to fight against CRT in our public schools. That's not it. That's not it. I've got to speak out against drag queens doing story hour for the babies at the library. You don't give a crap about babies. Give me a break. That's not what this is saying. It's the battlefield of walking a life of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but walking this narrow path of faith is stinking hard. That's the battle. That's the battle. And that's where you and I work together in community to help the weak stand back up again, to encourage the brother and the sister that's fallen, to tell them, I believe in you, and I'm going to help you. That's the battlefield. The battlefield of discouragement, our illnesses, our lack of faith. We get worn down walking down this narrow path that is a battlefield. Paul also says, Make sure no one returns evil for evil, but always pursue what is good as it affects one another in the church, but also all people. How do we do that without community? How do you make sure that I don't return evil for evil towards someone unless I'm in community with you? We need one another, guys. We need each other to walk this narrow path. We were never meant to do it by ourselves. Celebrate always. Pray constantly and give thanks to God no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Don't suppress the spirit. Don't downplay prophecies. Take a close look at everything. Test it and cling to what is good. This could literally be translated, regard everything seriously and then choose what is best. Put away every form of evil. How many of, how many of you have had this one little passage of Scripture preached at you? Avoid all appearance of evil. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Right? Right? That's not what this word is saying. I, I was so relieved to see this this week. But that's not what that's saying. It's saying when you hear a preacher or a teacher spouting some nonsense that is contrary to the gospel of Christ, that's evil. Stay away from it. You don't have to be there. You don't have to go to that church. You don't have to listen to that person on TV. You don't have to read that book. You don't have to follow them on Twitter. Stay away. It's false. Scorning the Holy Spirit tell you a brief story. Um, about 25 years ago, there was a group of us that went to uh, hear Beth Moore at the Pyramid in Memphis. We lived about two hours from Memphis. and We had seen Beth Moore many, many times, our group had, and it was just kind of this yearly thing that we did together as girls. Hotel, eat at a nice restaurant, the whole thing. And in that message that weekend, that Friday night and that Saturday, she focused on, believe it or not, being anti-racist in Memphis, Tennessee to a group of about 20,000 white women. I was there with 20 other women. There were 21 of us total. As we left that place on Saturday, every single woman in that van, or when we got to lunch, said, 
she missed it this weekend. I didn't get it. I, I, I didn't understand a word she was saying. That didn't apply to me. I, yeah, I've always liked Beth Moore, but she missed it this weekend. That's scorning the Holy Spirit. That's scorning the Holy Spirit. Maybe it didn't apply to one or two, but we were white women from Mississippi. It was something we needed to hear, but we're not willing to confront in ourselves. So now, may the God of peace make you God's completely, make you God's own completely, and set you apart from the rest. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved, kept intact, and wholly free from any sort of blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> For the God who calls you is faithful, and God can be trusted to make it so. I tear up every time I get to that line. In the Passion it reads, the one who calls you by name is trustworthy and will thoroughly complete his work in you. Some of the hardest work that you and I will ever do is walking along this narrow path together and people have proven themselves unfaithful to us. The, har the horrific circumstances did not let The worst things happened. We prayed for God to save our marriage, and it fell apart anyway. We prayed for a good health diagnosis or outcome, and we didn't get it. When we beg for our child to come back, and they don't. We're on that narrow path, and we are fighting for our faith on that battlefield. We are fighting for our own hope and joy, and we need each other to do this. We prayed in Jesus' name. We prayed the blood of Jesus to cover us, protect us, pass over us, and it did not pass over us. We were left uncovered and unprotected. It didn't work, and God does not seem trustworthy anymore. The hardest work we'll ever do is getting back up to our feet and choosing to find God trustworthy once again. I'm going to share this miscarriage story now. And I'll give you a few seconds to leave if you need to. If you're online and you need to pause. Many, er, <clears throat> many years ago, I was with a small group of ladies. And uh, one of the ladies was one of my dearest friends. And she was expecting a baby. And um, she had gotten about to the six-month mark. And something was wrong. And it didn't look good. And so she asked me and a couple other women, there, were, maybe, maybe there, may, there might have been five or six of us together total. She asked us to meet her at church on a Tuesday night to pray over her that the baby would be well. And so we did, and in typical Melinda Sparks fashion, you know, I was just felt the, the, the spirit and became dramatic, and uh, I don't do that for, like, Anyway, that's a whole other story for another day. I felt intensely about it because this was my friend and I loved her and I wanted that baby to be well. And I remember in my prayer praying this line, God, when you heal this baby, I will be the first one to get up on the top of this church and shout your name all over Tupelo, Mississippi about how good you are. And I meant it. And I would have done it. 
But my friend said, the minute those words left my mouth in prayer, she felt the still, small voice of God saying, and what if I don't? Would you do it then? How do we become First Thessalonians people, Amago? She did lose that baby. His name was Charlie. We become First Thessalonians people through community. Your battles, my battles on that narrow path, we bear them together. We put courage back into people who are losing heart and we become skilled at it. We do life together. Joy, pain, celebration, fear, hope, hopelessness, doubt, praying, anger, giving thanks, unable to utter one good word about God, Jesus and that whole kit and caboodle. We have nothing nice to say. But we do it together as a community. That's how we get through it. 